Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Some questions are very practical and pragmatic. Others more uh, theological and uh, ethical in nature. Uh, Dr. Aiken, on behalf of the college, I want to inquire about having a cafeteria possibly built in the near future. Also wondering if you foresee more financial aid provided for college students in the near future as well. Thank you for your time. Uh, do I see us building a cafeteria in the near future? Probably not. Uh, we simply don't have the funding for it. Plus, we're fortunate in that, unlike some of the other seminaries, and all you have to do is visit the other five, we've got a lot of really good eating establishments close by, many of them within walking distance, and uh, they're very reasonably priced. And so we're blessed in that regard that uh, other schools are not. Uh, we do eventually, down the road, hope to have something like that, and we're always open to developing uh, more services there, but uh, for the foreseeable future, probably not. More financial aid for the college students, yes, as, as we can uh, raise it, and we work constantly on doing that, uh, not just really for the college students, but for all of you. Uh, one of our goals is that when you graduate here, you graduate with no debt so that you can immediately go to whatever ministry assignment the Lord has for you. That sets us apart really from almost all other evangelical seminaries. You pay uh, when you compare to other seminaries or even other evangelical colleges, almost all of you even now are still paying half of what you would pay if you were to attend one of these other schools. But we want to do better, and we'll always work hard to do that if we can. Uh, what do you see Southeastern's role or relationship to its graduates in their different ministries, and how is the school and yourself going about that goal? In other words, what is your desire for Southeastern in the lives and ministries of its graduates in working together for the Great Commission. Well, one of the things we hope is that you'll stay in contact with us after you have graduated. Uh, I know that for me, for many others of the faculty, uh, we want you to always feel free to contact us, to call us, to write us. Uh, we're happy to assist you and correspond with you in any way that we can. That happens uh, really almost on a weekly basis for me and I suspect for my colleagues as well. We also try to provide things that will make it possible to stay connected and also to continue to serve you. For example, our annual Nine March conference in the fall this last year, we had more than 800 people attend it. Uh, not surprisingly, the overwhelming majority were not students. Uh, even though we encourage you to come, you're so busy, you're in classes, but when you get away from here, suddenly you're outside the environment where you're challenged to think theologically, where you're challenged to improve skills that you have. So the Nine Marks Conference, uh, the 2020 Conference, uh, also uh, we are developing what we call our Equipping Center Initiative where pastors can work with the seminary to have interns who can work toward as much as 15 to 18 hours of their program of study within the context of a local church. You say, yeah, but my church may be outside of North Carolina. We're not limiting ourselves with our equipping centers. And, uh, in fact, we're in conversations right now with a number of pastors outside of North Carolina that would like to create an equipping center at their church so that their students could conceivably... 
uh, never have to move, or men or women that are on their staff would actually never have to move from their ministry location but could actually work toward the MDiv degree uh, without doing that through online classes, through the Equipping Center Initiative, through our hybrid classes, through our J-terms. The fact is the world's changing rapidly. When I was in school, there was no debate. You were going to go to seminary. You moved to the seminary. You took classes Tuesday through Friday. Uh, you lived within driving distance of the school. We didn't even have really much of an extension program. Now that is in place, but even beyond that, Internet education, uh, hybrid classes, J-terms, uh, has changed the way that we deliver theological education. Uh, I think there will always be a need for a, a base campus because some of us learn better in that kind of face-to-face kind of interaction with a live person. Uh, others are very gifted to, to learn through Internet technology. But the fact is, I don't think you can teach everything through the Internet. Uh, you need to be mentored. You need to be discipled. And though our classroom is not ideal for that, it still provides that outlet and avenue. Plus, it also puts you here in a context where you have the chance to go to church with your professors, to be in their homes, uh, to pray with them, to be in their offices. Uh, and so I think there will always be a place for that within uh, theological education. We also have, of course, our DMIN program that allows you to do further education wherever you happen to live. We also have now a number of non-residential Ph.D. programs. In other words, God's blessed you with a good mind and you'd like to go further. You can do a Ph.D. in leadership uh, non-residential, that means you don't have to live here. You come in for two and three weeks at a time, uh, once or twice a year. We have a Ph.D. in missions that's for our international missionaries. We're about to maybe have already launched the Ph.D. in North American church planting. Uh, we have a uh, EDD in education. All of those are non-residential in addition to our DMIN program that allows you to further your education without being here on campus. So that's another way we can stay in contact with you. We also have what is called our Board of Visitors. We also, of course, have our Alumni Association. And so the fact is you can stay as involved in Southeastern as you would like to be. Uh, Some will graduate here and never attend another meeting related to Southeastern, never come back on the campus, uh, and that's fine. Uh, that's, that's their choice, but there are many avenues if you want to take advantage of them to stay connected and involved in the life of the seminary long after you're graduated. I realize this is, it is early on, but uh, what positive or negative results can you already see or anticipate with the Great Commission resurgence? In other words, uh, is it happening, and is it meeting more or less resistance than anticipated? Well, actually, I've been encouraged for the most part because of several things. Number one, two state conventions uh, formed their own Great Commission Resurgence Task Force, Kentucky uh, and Florida. Both of those uh, committees have made their report. They will be voted on this uh, fall and the next couple of weeks in their state conventions. Both of them want to increase the amount of giving that will go to the national convention and therefore getting more money out of their state and more money to North American church planting through NAM, more monies to the International Mission Board. So I'm very encouraged to see what uh, Kentucky and Florida has done. Uh, I'm also thrilled beyond measure uh, that Kevin Ezell has been elected as the new president of the North American Mission Board. Uh, He was my pastor for eight years when I lived in Louisville. He and his wife, Lynette, are very dear friends of ours. 
Uh, two of my sons have served on staff, uh, were serving on staff with Kevin before he accepted the appointment with the North American Mission Board. All four of my sons love him dearly and were greatly impacted by his ministry. He's a visionary leader. He's a very creative leader, one of the most godly men I've ever known. Uh, Nam is in for a lot of change. Uh, it is going to be kind of a rock and roll world for them in the uh, weeks and months uh, ahead. If you keep up with things, for example, uh, in his first week there, he has offered an early retirement plan uh, for those who might choose to go ahead and retire early. They have to make a decision by uh, the end of this calendar year. Uh, interestingly, that uh, is something that could affect as much as one-third of all the employees who are stationed there in Atlanta, uh, which tells you something about the demographic makeup of the persons that live in Atlanta right now that serve the North American Mission Board. Uh, the Great Commission Resurgence Task Force report has asked NAM to commit no less than 50% of all of its financial resources to church planting. Uh, Dr. Ezell intends to fulfill that request and that assignment. And so, again, that means there's going to be basically a revolution taking place through uh, the North American Mission Board's uh, restructuring and refocusing. I think all of that is good. In fact, I not only think it's good, I think it's great, it's wonderful, it's fantastic, and I will do everything I can to assist and support uh, Dr. Ezell as he leads the North American Mission Board in the days ahead. At the same time, uh, there have been some state conventions that have bowed their neck, uh, that have continued in spite of the overwhelming affirmation of the Great Commission Resurgence Task Force report to oppose it, to say that grassroots Southern Baptists uh, are against it. Uh, I can't find those people. Uh, it seems to me almost across the board, except for a few that have vested interests, interest that they are supportive of the idea of us getting more monies uh, and more personnel to the nations, getting more monies and personnel to the underserved and unreached places of North America, like the Northeast and the Northwest and the West Coast and the Midwest. In other words, getting out of the Bible Belt uh, and getting churches where there are not churches. Um, those who are opposing it, um, in my judgment, they're myopic. They're selfish. Uh, when you hear people who, they're territorial. Uh, when you hear people complaining about the Great Commission Resurgence, it's almost without exception. Well, this is going to affect me. This is going to hurt me. This is going to upset me. This is going to be traumatic for me. And uh, I just think the focus is in the wrong place. Uh, I don't think the focus, and this includes Danny Aiken, I've said before, I'll say it again, if it can be demonstrated that Southeastern Seminary is not essential to the fulfilling of the Great Commission, I will lead the charge in shutting her down. We're not essential. Uh, we're not necessary. Uh, I believe God has raised us up, but if we cease to fulfill the assignment for which he has raised this institution up and we're not contributing to the fulfillment of the Great Commission, then we don't need to be here. And uh, that's just the bottom line. And so I've been, for the most part, encouraged. But I'll say this. If there is going to be a Great Commission resurgence, it will be because pastors pick up the mantle and carry it through. Johnny Hunt, as president of our convention, can form a task force that can bring a report. Prior to that, I can preach a message in chapel that kind of lays out a vision of where we might could go. 
But the fact of the matter is, and so all of you men that are here in particular, you hear me and hear me well. Your church will be no more passionate for the Great Commission than are you. They will not go to the nations if you don't go. They will not be involved in church planting if you don't lead them to be involved in church planting. They will not give more unless they see that lived out and receive a challenge in that context from you. And so the bottom line is this thing will move forward or it will not, depending upon whether pastors or not uh, pick up the mantle and run with it. You say, are you hopeful? I'm hopeful. But I also know, again, that a lot of pastors, and I've watched this now for more than 30 years, a lot of pastors are territorial. A lot of pastors are selfish. Uh, it used to be, I'd hear guys even say, why would I want to start a church, you know, 10, 15 miles from here in an area where there might need to be one because that might take away from my people. Or as we now have folks wanting to go and plant churches in areas where for whatever reason the churches that are there are not functioning very well, and yet they say, well, do you, if they come in, they'll take people away from me. Well, who are they going to take away from? You're not winning anybody to Christ anyway. You're sitting there like a dead religious club and been going downhill for the last 30 or 40 years. Maybe a new church there might do something good in terms of reaching people that you haven't been reaching, that you're not reaching, and that for whatever reason doesn't appear you're going to reach. And so I will say this. I'm grateful that a younger generation doesn't seem to be quite so territorial as my generation and older. And uh, it blesses me, for example, this weekend uh, I had the joy of preaching at Vision Church where one of our African-American students, Jerome Gay, is pastor. My wife was asking him. They meet, uh, by the way, in a theater where six churches meet, all in the same theater. And you've got one that's uh, like an Acts 29 church, which is his. You've got a couple of prosperity theology churches there. You've got kind of a more traditional church. I was playfully saying, if you go to church one Sunday and you get mad, just walk out of the lobby and go to another one. It's right there. and You don't even have to drive down the road to try to find another church. But uh, my wife asked, uh, Jerome said, uh, where, uh, where are your offices? Do you have offices here in the theater? And he said, no, uh, Treasuring Christ, Christ Church. Uh, very graciously provides for us at no cost uh, free officing. And they're only like five miles away. So you say, aren't they in competition with each other? The only person we're in competition with is the devil. We're not in competition with each other. And so that just needs to be put away, kicked to the curb, repented of for the sin that it is. And so those are the things that I think can inhibit uh, a great commission resurgence coming to fruition. But overall, I'm, I'm quite pleased that we've moved uh, as fast as we have and are seeing as much done as quickly as we're seeing done. Kind of related to that then, uh, we have become known Southeastern as a great commission school. Uh, what do you plan to do in, to advance this resurgence as a motivating, driving force in your students' ministries? Well, I hope that we'll continue to uh, cultivate around here a passion for the great commission that will be caught uh, it can be taught, but it's better caught. Uh, that means we will challenge you guys to think hard about going to the nations. I'll continue to throw that out there again and again and again. Challenge many of you to think about doing church planting in areas where there's massive population, but there are no evangelical churches. If God calls you to go to a church where you're there, in essence, to revitalize a, a faltering fellowship, uh, my goal will be that you will still have a great commission passion that will help that church rethink what it means to be the church and that it will also be involved in international missions. It will also be involved in church planting. 
Some people sometimes say wrongly about, about myself, about Johnny Hunt, and even someone like David Platt. You basically want us to sell everything. You want all of the Christians to go to the nations. We've never said that. We're all very much aware of the fact that we cannot go to the nations without a strong home base. I, I'm very much aware of that. Having said that, do I think more ought to be going than are going? Yes. Do I think more ought to be moving out of the deep south and going to the tough places in North America? Absolutely. Do I think, though, the churches that are making up the, the foundation of the SBC in the deep south, that they should be more active in church planting, more faithful in giving, more sacrificial in giving? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, when you read the statistics of what, uh, in fact, I want to ask you to raise your hand, but I'll just throw this out here uh, for you to consider. How many of you in this room give at least a tithe of your income to the work of the Lord? Praise God. If you don't, why? You say, well, I can't afford it. And that's not a good excuse. My wife and I were just like you when we were seminary students. We were dirt poor. I can remember several times getting my paycheck, meeting all our obligations, having $4 in the bank account, and knowing I would not get paid again for 10 days. I've been there, I remember. And yet we never, ever considered not giving at least a tithe of our income to the work of the Lord. And by God's good grace now, we make more money, our kids are gone. Uh, I like to say to folks when I do marriage seminars, you know, when, you, when your kids actually leave home, it's really a pretty cool thing. So like a honeymoon again. So this time you got money. And so it really, it's, it's really nice. You know, you got money, you got kids are gone. And so we've increased massively what we give to our church, what we give here, what we give to other ministries. And, and we want to give more. We're going to leave money behind when we, when we die. In fact, one of the things I would challenge you that came out of the Great Commission Resurgence Task Force is we challenge God's people to leave something behind for the work of the Lord after they're dead. How many, how many of you are keeping up with what Bill and Melinda Gates are doing right now? They are challenging the 100, 200 most wealthy people in the world to follow in their footsteps and to commit to leaving between 50 and 90% of all that they have to charitable ministries uh, and charitable entities once they're dead and gone. Because they are what? Good humanitarians. Shame on us that they set the example that we should have been setting for, for decades. No, for centuries. If anyone ought to be leaving behind the bulk of their wealth for something that really matters, it ought to be Christian people leaving it behind for the work of the Lord that the nations might hear the gospel and be made glad. And so I challenge all of you in this room, like my wife and I were challenged, and we change things. You put together a will. And you leave something, you leave something substantial behind for the work of the Lord so that when you're dead and gone, your good for the gospel continues after you're already in heaven. And again, why we even have to raise that issue is an amazing thing to me. But I guarantee you, most of the people in your churches, when it comes to what they leave behind in terms of their will, their estates, whether it's very little or whether it's a lot, they're not thinking about leaving it to the work of the Lord. They're thinking about leaving it to their kids. So are you going to leave anything to your kids? Maybe. Depends how nice they are to me. And I keep reminding them of that. And so right now they're being very nice, so I guess they want something. They're already, by the way, my four sons are already debating, you know, how they're going to divide up my library. 
when I've gone. That's, that's what they said. We're going to have a, uh, we've already putting in plans, the draft or the lottery, and we're trying to decide whether it goes by, you know, sets or individual books. And I said, I ain't, I ain't even close to being gone yet. Yeah, but you just never know, Dad. So, so you, you can just expect, if I die in the immediate future, you can expect four U-Hauls to be backing up to Magnolia Hill, and it'll probably be led by my four sons in there after my library. So that tells you how spiritual they are. Anyway, moving on, what insights can you give us about why the International Mission Board has not yet found a leader? I believe the simple answer is they have not yet found who they believe uh, is God's man. Uh, they have worked hard. I personally even met with them once, not as a candidate, but as a consultant, just to give them my thoughts and ideas about where I thought they ought to go and what kind of person I thought they would be well served to call as a leader. And uh, it's a big committee, which is, again, here's a word of counsel for you. Uh, and I just saw yesterday that the uh, uh, president uh, or the state executive of the Kentucky Baptist Convention, Bill Mackey, uh, has announced his retirement effective next May. So they appointed a 15-member search committee. Well, the IMB has a 15-member search committee. You say, in your opinion, is that too big? It is massively too big. Uh, it's hard to get 15 people to agree on anything. And to have a committee that large just makes the task all that more difficult. And so that's where they are. But I, I also believe in God's providence that he has delayed uh, the raising up of this man until now. And um, I, I'm comfortable with that and, and will trust the Lord in the midst of all of it. Dr. Aiken, I am currently writing, composing, and recording a rap song about the Great Commission. Would you be willing to fe be featured in this rap song to promote missional living by rapping a verse or two? Sure. Sure. As long as it's not too long and, uh, you know, it fits a white boy context, I'm willing to, to give it my best shot. So, sure, you let me know and we'll go for it. All right. Relationships. This will be a good question for us to consider. What is the place and or weight of physical attraction in the context of what one finds attractive in someone of the opposite uh, sex? In other words, can you expound on the balance between a Gnostic understanding of separating physical and spiritual and where physical attraction uh, is completely dismissed as sinful lust as compared to the opposite, uh, where physical attraction trumps everything? Uh, is your position universal? Is it different for women? Well, I, you know, I'm not a woman, so I can't comment about them. I'll just tell you for me, uh, physical attraction, uh, it played a big role. In fact, uh, why would you want to marry someone you don't like looking at? I mean, why would you do that? Why would you, why would you marry somebody that's ugly, mean, and isn't going to make you happy? So you say, so when you were dating Miss Aiken, you liked what you saw. I liked what I saw a lot. <laughs> and in fact, uh, my, my, my sons actually bought into this, and I even have now discovered that a friend of mine that does a lot of premarital counseling uses this. I was saying it playfully, but truthfully, uh, someone asked me one time, uh, well, well, how did you know for sure? that you were to marry Charlotte. And I said, well, you know, just to kind of cut to the chase, go bottom line and put it on a level where everybody will understand, I asked myself a simple question. And that question was this. Would I like and be comfortable with the idea of her sleeping in another man's bed for the rest of her life? And the answer was no. No. 
I did not like that idea. Well, there's only one way to prevent that. And so I went back home after being in Bible college for six months, and I asked her to marry me because I wanted her sleeping in my bed like for the rest of her life. Well, I guess at, the, at least the rest of my life, although I've told her she marries someone after I die and I don't like them, I'm going to come back and haunt her and him. And so she just needs to be prepared for that. But the fact of the matter is, you know, God does give us eyes. And uh, physical attraction is part and partial of who we are. Now, is it the only thing that led me to marry her? And is it the only thing? Of course not. Uh, we talked a lot about major issues in life, not all the little nitty-gritty details, but, for example, were we in agreement that we were going to have a fairly large family? Yes, that we were in perfect agreement. We wanted to have four children. Were we in agreement that when the children started showing up that she would be a stay-at-home mom because we wanted her to be the primary shaper of their character and their conduct? Yes, and so that meant, you know, we drove old cars and we wore uh, clothes for a long time and she made clothes with the sewing machine that my mother had given her as a gift and we worked with other families to do the hand-me-down thing and we didn't go out and eat and we didn't, we didn't do a lot of things, just like many of you don't do a lot of things right now as well. Uh, were we convicted about uh, and convinced that God had called me into the ministry? And was she comfortable being a, a minister's wife? Absolutely. And so we talked through a number of things like that. But at the same time, there was this very strong physical attraction that also brought us together. And I also would say has still maintained a, a, a vital part of our, of our marriage life. In fact, one of the things that I found wonderful is this. If you had told me when I was 21 that someday I would find a 51-year-old woman absolutely drop-dead gorgeous and the most uh, desirable thing I'd ever seen, I'd have told you that you were crazy. Today, as a 53-year-old man married to a 51-year-old brown-eyed brunette that I find absolutely gorgeous and beautiful, I can tell you the day has come. And I'm grateful that God allows us to grow in that kind of relationship and maintain that kind of attraction on a physical level along with the other blessings that come as we grow closer together in this wonderful thing called marriage. Now, obviously, it can walk over into the category of sinful lust, and it can walk over into the category of, a, of lifestyle decisions that you could make that could do serious damage to your life and destroy the potential for effective ministry. And so there is a balancing act there. And that kind of leads to one of the other questions that I got that was kind of an interesting question uh, that came from an, kind of an odd direction, but I'll, I'll go ahead and deal with it now. Uh, two different uh, sweet ladies here asked me the question, uh, basically the same question. Uh, there is a rumor that the reason the buildings are kept so cold at Southeastern is to ensure that women will dress modestly. Is that true? No. No. If I think you need to dress modestly, um, I may say something to you because I run the risk in the culture in which we live of sexual harassment. I'll just get one of my very fine secretaries or my wife or Denise O'Donohue to say something to you. Uh, because the fact of the matter is, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, you ought to do it all to the glory of God, and you bring no glory to God by dressing like a slut. Okay? 
bring no glory to God, ladies, by wearing something too low, too high, or too tight, okay? But no, the reason the buildings stay cold, for example, like this one, and like Staley Hall is that, and like uh, uh, Appleby, and they're old. They're very old buildings that have very old uh, heating systems and cooling systems, and we do our best uh, to regulate them. Uh, but the fact is, for these older buildings, for us to get them where we could regulate them ideally will cost us millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And uh, that's not right now where I think is the best expenditure of our further. We don't have it. But even if we did have it, I wouldn't want to do it because I'd rather take those monies and, again, keep your tuition low and try to help my faculty receive a better salary than they do. And so, no, the reason the buildings are, are cold is because they're old. Uh, now, having said that, if there are certain buildings that just become so unbearable, uh, you can always bring it to our attention. We'll look at them. We'll try to regulate them and balance them out as, as best we can. We want to be good stewards of the resources God has given us. We want to be good uh, in the area of creation care. Uh, we want to take care of the things as best we can. But like in my office area, uh, my secretaries, Debbie and Kim, will shut my door as much as they can. I like to keep my door open, but when I'm not there, that thing's shut. Because my room, it, it cools down. I mean, even though the thermostat outside on the wall may say 70 or 71 degrees, it's not 70 or 71 in there. Uh, it's in the mid-60s, which is just fine with me, but it's not fine with them. And so we just have to do the best we can, and that's why. But no, modesty is something that uh, young women should pursue uh, out of a desire to honor Christ and not put a stumbling block before their brothers and sisters, uh, especially their brothers, as well as even potentially run the risk uh, of harming their, their, their witness, all right? Let me take another question and then one that kind of relates to that one in a different context. Um, aside from the Bible, what are five books that have most shaped uh, who you are today? And that's a great question. It was not an easy one uh, to answer because I can't tell you that, well, here's just the book that stands out. But having thought through it for, uh, for actually several uh, hours, uh, if you were to ask me to list five, they would be these. Uh, How Should We Then Live by Francis Schaeffer. That book massively shaped my life and my way of thinking. Uh, I was very much impacted by Christian theology by Millard Erickson. Now, maybe some of you will someday say, well, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology really shaped my thinking, or maybe theology for the church really was formative in my life, uh, or maybe something written by uh, another theologian. But that big, what we used to call the big green monster, it just had a very shaping influence in my way of thinking, which may explain in part why I'm a modified Calvinist. Uh, I, I never have been able to buy into limited atonement, uh, but I do have a basic modified Calvinism that I think is balanced, uh, that strives to be biblical, and I think Erickson's systematic hits a really good balance in that particular area. Uh, it's a very easy book to read, a very simple book. I've used it, for those of you that have had me in hermeneutics, Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks, I just think is the best thing ever written on how to just to do basic, simple, inductive Bible study. And uh, he taught uh, that method at Dallas Theological Seminary for more than 50 years. Uh, you have people, for example, like uh, Chuck Swindoll and Tony Evans who will tell you that they learned to preach not by the preaching classes at Dallas Seminary, but by reading or by taking Dr. Hendricks' class, which eventually became the basis of living by the book. 
Uh, to the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson is the story of Adoniram Judson and his three wives. Uh, I read that in college, and right then, along with having been called to the uh, ministry on a mission trip, I think the Lord put in this, uh, my heart the seeds for my, my heart today uh, for the nation and the Great Commission. That's one of the most remarkable books you'll ever read. Uh, they went through so much pain, so much sorrow, so much tragedy. Uh, here's a very realistic portrayal of a missionary who, following the death of his wife and his precious little girl, went out into the woods, dug a grave, sat there for months staring into it. I mean, he went into a manic state of depression. But because, in fact, he says in, uh, in uh, one of his letters, uh, I know that you exist, but I cannot find you. Speaking of God, he never denied that God existed, but he said, I don't find you, I don't see you, I don't hear from you, it's like you're silent to me. But uh, because of his faith, he, he maintained his commitment to the Lord. The Lord brought him out of that depression. Uh, later he would see and be a part of a great revival that would sweep Burma. And so that today, there are more than 700,000 Baptist believers in Miramar because of the life and ministry of Adoniram Judson and Anne uh, and Mary uh, and Emily, his three wives. So To the Golden Shore was a great book that inspired me, which is also in part, I guess, what moved me to preach the, to do a missionary message every semester and also to write the little book, Five Who Changed the World. And then, I'll just be honest with you, in recent days, David Platt's book, Radical, uh, has really uh, shaken me in a good way. Uh, my friend James Merrick called me one day and said, have you read this book? I said, well, I wrote an endorsement for it. He said, he brutalizes us. I said, yes. He says, I can't put it down. I said, yes. He said, I read it, go away and, and, and brood and repent and come back and, and I let him beat me up again. And I said, yes. And, and, and would to God that he'll keep beating us up um, because I think he is simply challenging us to live the normal Christian life. See, Vance Habner, that uh, witty North Carolina evangelist that many of you don't even know, which is sad and tragic, uh, just an incredible gifted mind, never, never learned to drive, had people drive him everywhere, everywhere he went, uh, but was so well admired, he was a, a staple at the Moody Bible Conference for more than three decades in Chicago, uh, preached all over the, the world, well, all over America, and Vance Hadner said about the Christians that he experienced, he said, you know, we're so subnormal that if we just got normal, people would think we're abnormal. Well, I think that's true. I think most of our folks live subnormal Christian lives. If we just got to normal, they would think we're abnormal or they would think that we're radical. Well, I believe God wants us to be radical. And so those are five books that have had a very shaping influence in my thinking. Get this every, every semester. I'm going to put something on out to you all today in a blog article. Uh, what are your thoughts on students who drink between semesters, claiming they are not technically enrolled and therefore do not need to adhere to the SBC, uh, SCBTS covenant? Heard students refer to this loophole here at other seminaries. Uh, what do you think about that? And then I was asked about drinking as a third-tier issue. And then I was asked about, do I think, and I think probably drinking was in view here, that uh, our stand, for example, on alcohol is in direct opposition to like what you read in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 and following, where Paul writes, if, Christ, uh, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, uh, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts 
uh, and teachings. So, probably not going to answer this question anymore because I'm tired of answering it. Bottom line is, Southeastern Seminary maintains a position of absence when it comes to alcohol that's not going to change in my lifetime. Well, that's not fair. It's not going to change as long as I'm president here. Do I call it a sin issue? No, I never have, although I think it can be a sin issue. Do I think it's a wisdom issue? Absolutely. And I have not seen any argument, and I've had good long conversations with Mark Driscoll. I've had good long conversations with Matt Chandler. I've had good long conversations with some of my brothers that live in the immediate area. I've not heard a good argument yet uh, for the wisdom of imbibing beverage alcohol that brings so much sorrow, so much pain, so much tragedy to so many people. Those who say, well, they drank in biblical days. It is not a one-to-one correspondence, and you are making a very foolish, superficial, shallow argument if you argue that. Uh, I would admonish all of you or encourage all of you to read Bob Stein's article on alcohol, which I think is probably the best thing that's ever been written. And I'll just cut to the easy argument. Children in the first century drank alcohol. They drank wine. Now, do you think they were drinking something that had such a toxicity of alcohol that they would quickly or even eventually get drunk? Of course not. No responsible parent would do that. So there's not a one-to-one correspondence with what was done in the first century with what is today the alcohol industry in terms of promotion, in terms of commercialization, and in terms of alcohol content as well. It is not one-to-one. Now to the question. As long as you are not a graduate or as long as you have not withdrawn from this school, you are a student at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm even dumbfounded and gravely disappointed that some would even raise this issue and then try to pursue it as a, quote, loophole. Your problem is not your view of alcohol. Your problem is your integrity. Your integrity. And that you would even try to do that, to me, is is so disappointing. I, I was actually stunned uh, to receive the question. So, let's be clear. If you've not graduated, if you've not withdrawn from school, you are a student at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, whether it's the spring semester or the fall semester or in between. And therefore, you as a man or woman of integrity should adhere to our conduct covenant. Is that clear? And again, I'm just going to tell you guys, you live long enough, you experience it long enough. And I you say, well, you're making an experiential argument, not a biblical argument. I'm going to give you my biblical argument uh, through an email later today. So you'll get that. When you're married to a woman who grew up in a children's home because both of her parents were alcoholics, when you're married to a woman whose aunt had her neck broken by her husband in a drunken rage. He, by the way, spent two years in prison for involuntary manslaughter. Why even run the risk? For me, 
I can't give you a chapter and verse that says, Thou shalt not drink alcohol. I wish I could. But when I apply the principles of wisdom and witness, this is really not a difficult decision for me to make. Now, whether you agree with me or not, you've chosen to be a student here. So I don't like your alcohol policy. Well, then go, go, go to another school. Go to, I'll be quick to sign your form as you leave. In fact, just to put it in context, I had a guy come see me a few years ago who lacked one class to graduate. One class. He'd been away for a couple of years, came back, tragically had been raised in a strong fundamentalist context. And so what he was doing is like some of you, he does a pendulum swing to the other area. And so everything now is liberty. And there's very little in terms of responsibility, which, by the way, is the biblical posture. Liberty is always to be regulated by love and sound judgment. That's not legalism, by the way. He said, I lack one class. I said, well, I hope you get that class and you graduate. He said, well, there's a problem. I said, what's the problem? He says, I, I don't agree with your alcohol policy. I said, well, that's not my problem. That's your problem. He says, well... I think it's wrong. I said, that's fine. I think you're wrong. He said, well, I'm not going to sign the covenant. I said, fine. You're not going to graduate. He said, you would keep me from graduating over this policy over one class. I said, no, you'll keep yourself from graduating. I said, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. I said, even if you think the policy is horrible... For the sake of your graduating, you could choose to live by it for one semester, I would suspect. And I don't think that would cause you to compromise any significant conviction. And he said, well, it would. And I said, well, then fine. He said, so you're not going to change the policy? I said, no. So I won't graduate. I said, no. And guess what? He hasn't graduated. And he won't. And so just understand whether you like it or not, I don't really care anymore. It ain't changing. And I think you run the risk of being a fool to mess with something. By the way, did you see last week that one in four teenagers in America today admit to binge drinking? That, by the way, is illegal. See, for some of you that are here that are under 21, it's, it's, you know, it's illegal. It's against the law. So that doesn't even need to be debated. But even on the other issue, I just want to tell you, you, know, you live long enough. You get in there and minister to people. Put this one, I'll move on. I get it thrown in my face all the time. Well, our brothers and sisters in Europe uh, drink socially and they don't see a real problem with it. There's no problem with alcoholism over there. The latter statement is not true. They may do it, but it don't tell me it's not a problem. It is a problem. But if you were to go to Africa as a missionary... It would be a scandal for you to flaunt your liberty and take a drink where alcoholism is so rampant and ravaging in that context. That's why I come back and said a moment ago, I cannot say that taking a drink is always sinful. Uh, sometimes it is. I do think, though, in most cases it is very, very, very unwise. So 
There we are. How does one become a, uh, how does a non-Southern Baptist church go about becoming a Southern Baptist church? Just contact uh, the uh, headquarters in Cary, and they'll be glad to walk you through the steps. If you don't know how to do that, contact my office, and I'll be glad to follow up. Well, Southeastern have speakers like Mark Driscoll and those of Acts 29 come more often to speak in chapel rather than just at conferences. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've invited Mark back several times. The problem has been that uh, his calendar and schedule would not allow it. But, uh, uh, well, uh, come um, February, our uh, 2020 conference, Darren Patrick will be with us again. He was in chapel three times last semester. He's the vice president of Acts 29. Uh, he will also speak in chapel on Thursday before the 2020 conference. So, you know, I don't endorse everything that Acts 29 does. But I think they're doing a lot of good things, and so you'll not hear me uh, in any way being critical of the wonderful job they're doing in terms of church planning. And I count dear, though we disagree on some uh, issues, I count dear the friendship I have with Mark, with Darren, with Matt, and a number of others that are connected with Acts 29 as well. Uh, our culture is changing at a rapid rate. For example, when I was in high school, if anyone announced that they were homosexual, it was basically a school-wide scandal. Now one can basically count on a number of out-of-the-closet teens in almost any high school. And by the way, this morning uh, there was a report through CNN that for the first time in America, though most Americans still oppose gay marriage, they would not oppose the legalizing of gay marriage. For the first time in our history, more than 50% said they would not be opposed to its legalization. And it's going to happen. Is this going to happen? So, what other cultural shifts do you think the Great Commission, that Great Commission evangelicals should be prepared uh, for in the days ahead? Well, I do think that the, the, the homosexual issue is going to be the big one uh, because it sits, it's, it's, it's at the core of people's uh, perceived identity. It causes such emotion. I'm convinced that we will have gay marriage and probably sooner than later. We also, you may have seen that a federal judge has struck down uh, the don't ask, don't tell policy within the military. It's not coming back. Uh, I think what will happen is, we, I think once this, once this takes place, we will open up Pandora's box. And I think that at that point, we're going to be very hard-pressed to outlaw in the future. In fact, I think if I, easily in your lifetime, maybe even in my lifetime, I think we'll see the legalization of polygamy because you don't have a moral argument against it once you'd say that marriage should not be restricted to a man and a woman. What's your, what's your moral basis for arguing against polygamy? What's your basis for arguing against mixed marriages? Maybe you have a man that wishes to be married to both a man and a woman, or maybe two men and two women, or you do the mix. I don't see the, the rationale that can be brought against it. I also think we're going to see more of a focus upon infanticide and euthanasia. I think that you're going to have more and more arguments made for a quality of life ethic as opposed to a sanctity of life ethic so that not only will abortion continue to be the law of the land, I would not be surprised to see certain legislation enacted that will allow us to terminate children on the front end as well as require the termination of certain elderly on the back end. I don't think that's uh, far down the road. I think you're going to see a even continued loosening of uh, what's allowed to be put on the airways so that uh, not only will we have the profusion of profanity that we now have with television, I expect there will be uh, nudity uh, in the near future on television just like it is in Europe. Uh, we're just tracking behind Europe. We're just tracking behind Europe. And then I think in all of this, you and I can expect there to be perhaps in our lifetime 
uh, legislation with respect to uh, that will bring about religious persecution. I would not be surprised if uh, sometime down the road that if you were to stand up in a pulpit, as I'm about to do, and say we should love homosexuals, we should love lesbians, we should love the bisexual, the transgendered, we should preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ that liberates them from their sin, I could be accused of a hate crime and be in jail or fined for having just said that any type of sex outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, whether it be homosexual or heterosexual, is sinful behavior. It would not surprise me to see that that would be categorized as hate speech and therefore you would find yourself facing a fine or incarceration. I think those are the big things. In addition to that, of course, one last thing I would point out is just, again, the explosion of technology in terms of, uh, of, of uh, like things like in vitro fertilization, but going beyond that. The cloning issue has kind of gotten a little bit dormant right now. I expect it to kick back up again. And so scientific technology is advancing at such a rapid rate. Uh, we're always dog paddling to try to keep up and provide good biblical and theological responses to it. Uh, I don't expect that to go away. I would also say this, and this is not so much cultural as it is going to be within the culture of the church. There seems to be a real vibrant move right now, and Dr. Keith and I have talked about this a lot with some others, Dr. Ashford, to see a, a wedding of evangelical theology to theistic evolution. There's a big, big push out there now that uh, is saying that you can be a thoroughgoing evangelical and also embrace theistic evolution. And uh, the fact of the matter is, I think that's going to be a major issue that we're going to be required to engage. You say, well, that sounds to me then like even the issue of inerrancy might be coming up again. I think it is going to come up again. In fact, I think it's already coming, coming up again. I thought it would be 50 years between the battle that we just fought in the Southern Baptist Convention and in the evangelical world uh, to the next battle. Uh, everything happens faster now. So the uh, International Council on Biblical Inerrancy met uh, in the uh, early 80s. Uh, well, late 70s, early 80s, with their statement on inerrancy and then their statement on hermeneutics. Well, we're now 30 years later, and it's coming up again. And I think once more that battle is going to be fought. I said it several years ago. Uh, it wasn't novel with me, but we had people saying that the battle for the Bible is over. Uh, brothers and sisters, the battle for the Bible will never be over. Uh, we will fight the war for the Word until Jesus comes again. It may take different shapes. It may come in a different kind of context, but just mark it down. We will forever be battling the battle for the Bible. All right, very quickly, if I can take a couple real fast, and then I'll let you get out of here. Um, this is a good one. We'll end, on, we'll end on this one. With the approaching of midterm elections, I've noticed a growing political atmosphere here on campus. I had not. Uh, political chapel messages, well, you could expect Richard Land who is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, to address some of those kind of things. That just is going to happen. I don't care when he comes, that's going to happen. Uh, can endorsements in chapel be a projection? That was a mistake. Uh, I did not realize that had happened the way it was. Uh, we do not endorse any candidates. In fact, prior to this year, I used to allow candidates to come here and say, hey, I'm Danny Aiken, I'm running for XYZ, uh, I'm a Christian, uh, please go vote, let me pray. I've now cut all that out. I will now not allow any more I mean, come on campus uh, as a private citizen, but I'll not have anybody up here doing that anymore. Uh, you say, so you don't care about politics. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, I will vote. I vote in every election. 
Uh, and I will vote, and I will vote my convictions, and I will vote for those men and women that I think will promote uh, uh, righteousness and justice and that will affirm the values that I hold dear. And so um, what do I think is the proper relationship between church and politics? They need to be kept separate. I am a thoroughgoing Baptist. I believe in separation of church and state. Uh, do I believe that we should uh, be involved in the political process? Absolutely. How do you feel about the growing number of evangelicals who see Glenn Beck uh, and others like him as their spokesman? I think it's sheer insanity. In fact, I think it's stupid. Uh, he's, a, he's a Mormon. Uh, and so he can speak for his particular values, but for folks to say that uh, we, we like this man because he's spiritual, yeah, he worships the spirit of demons. Doesn't he? So I don't like you saying that. Well, I don't care. If the Bible's true, then Mormonism's false. Uh, Mormons worship a false god, which means they worship the gods of the demons. And so, no, he's not my spokesman, and I'm not going to get on his parade or, or tuck in behind his, uh, his, uh, his horse and, and care. Uh, no, no. I, I, I am actually dumbfounded at, again, the naivete and stupidity of some evangelical believers. I'm just dumbfounded by this. So you're going to invite him to come speak in chapel? Are you, have you lost your mind? The day I do, they'll lead me out in a, in a white thing, drooling out of my mouth. That's what they'll have happen. No. No, I'm not going to do anything like that. No. And, and, and again, I'm just dumbfounded uh, that, you know, we make ridiculous statements that um, show such a shallowness uh, of, of truth. And here's it, and I'll stop with this. Those that live in the Deep South in particular... We, we played the fool over the last 20 or 30 years. And as a result of playing the fool, our people sometimes don't know the difference between being uh, a Christian and being a good American. They think being a good American means being a good Christian. Being a good Christian means being a good American. And so, you know, we have our big Fourth of July services, and we bring in the flag, and we do all that. And by the way, I'm a big American I love to say the pledge. I love to sing the national anthem. Uh, I would die for my country. But brothers and sisters, if push comes to shove and I have to make a decision between the USA and Jesus, the USA loses like every single time. And how we somehow merge that so that our people don't understand the difference. And they don't. They don't. You've got people in your church that will get more excited and energized over this midterm election than they will getting the gospel to the 1.6 billion people who've never heard of Jesus. They'll give more money to some pack or to some particular political party than they will to get the gospel into the inner cities and to the unreached and underserved places of North America. Now, bottom line, once more, boys, falls on the shoulders of pastors who can help people think through carefully what it means to be a faithful, devoted follower of Christ as well as a good citizen. I'll tell you someone I think sets a really good model here for us, and that's Mark Dever. Mark Dever's uh, church is like four blocks behind the Supreme Court. Uh, he has in his church persons that uh, work with Democrats and Republicans. Uh, Mark, I think, challenges them to be good, faithful, 
uh, American citizen, but he does so without politicizing his pulpit or politicizing his church. Does that mean then that he ignores the hard moral issues that the Bible addresses? Absolutely not. He hits them head on. You cannot avoid doing that. But you can do that without crossing the line and, again, blurring the clear distinction between what it means to be a, a good American and what it means to be a faithful, devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the two overlap, and, and, and we rejoice in that. Sometimes they don't. You better make sure that you are worshiping and giving your allegiance to the right God. His name is Jesus. It is not the flag of the United States of America. Father, thank you for the time we've had today. I pray it's been helpful and constructive. Where I've said things that were not, uh, strike them from their minds. Where I've said things that will be helpful to them in their walk with you. May they receive that uh, from someone who loves them very much and wants them to excel greatly for the glory of King Jesus. We pray and ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.